History of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 92, Family Ties. I do want to apologize if I am starting to sound a little hoarse. Marathon recording with a chest cold is always a dicey idea, but I'll be honest, this is not an episode I want to start my day with. I also need to offer a content warning. There's no beating around the bush here. A lot of this episode blatantly falls into a NSFW category, because we're going to talk a lot about incestual sex. And that is going to be a big part of this one. Skip to somewhere around minute 27 if you want to get through the explicit part, and just check the summary at the beginning of the next episode if you don't want to hear about it at all. It has been a long narrative run, folks. Plenty of interruptions, I will admit, but really nothing but storytelling since episode 78, with barely any jumping back in time to clear things up. That might be the longest continuous streak in the whole podcast. Darius II died. Cyrus the Younger tried and failed to assassinate his brother Artaxerxes during his coronation. Cyrus went home, plotted rebellion, marched to Mesopotamia for the climactic battle of Cunaxa. Artaxerxes rewarded his loyalists and punished his traitors. Greek mercenaries were cautious, hopeful, betrayed, and sent on the run for a grueling tour of the Northwestern Empire. Sparta invaded got distracted by the Corinthian War in Greece, and Artaxerxes intervened. Pharnabazus conquered Greek territory and took the Achaemenids further west than they had ever been. Artaxerxes forced Greece into the king's peace. Attention turned to Egypt, but try and try again, no Persian army could dislodge the independent pharaohs even as they suffered through their own dynastic ups and downs. Sparta broke the king's peace, starting the Boeotian War, but Thebes broke it harder, threatening all of Artaxerxes' hard work 
to govern the unruly tribes of that distant western peninsula. The satraps of Anatolia went into revolt, sparking a war that drew in everyone from Athens, Sparta, and Thebes to the Odrysian kings of Thrace and the Egyptian pharaoh Jedhor. Said pharaoh launched an offensive against Persia in the late 360s, only to find himself deposed by forces at home, even as a Persian army led by Prince Ochus marched against him. Simultaneously, the great satraps' revolt was brought to an end, not by the forces of the great king's loyalists, but by the machinations of three grand double agents in the rebel cause. Orontes of Mysia, Mithridates of Chios, and a little-known nobleman named Riomithres systematically betrayed their fellow rebels and either killed them or delivered them into Persian custody. Artaxerxes II would prove to be the longest-lived and longest-reigning Achaemenid king, so there is just a ton to pack in. In truth, the action could just keep going for another few decades if I wanted to write it that way. But the end of the Great Satraps Revolt is a convenient stopping point to take a breather. Last time, I introduced Ochus as Artaxerxes' son and heir. But now it is time to properly introduce him and the Game of Thrones that brought him to that point. Ochus was neither Artaxerxes' eldest son, nor his most important for most of the past 14 episodes. But he will rule one day, and soon as far as this podcast is concerned. Despite all of the conflict in the West, the royal family hasn't featured all that prominently since we killed Cyrus the Younger. It is time to remedy that. After his father's ascension, Artaxerxes was left with a pretty barren field of close male relatives. Most of his uncles were killed for challenging Darius II. Of those uncles, only one left any sons that we know about. Though there must have been others with varying degrees of removal, the only first cousin of Artaxerxes II we can firmly identify is Mithropastes, a young son of Arsites who led the Assyrian revolt against Darius. Too young to punish back in the 420s, Mithropastes was allowed to grow up under Artaxerxes II and received a position in the government along the Persian Gulf, probably satrap of Karmana, immediately east of Parsa. For now, he's inconsequential, but if you're trying to keep track of names for future use, that's one of them. Theseus notes that Perisatis had a series of troubled pregnancies, and that she and Darius may have stopped trying for more kids until he came to the throne. Artaxerxes II was 20 years older than all of his brothers, and the only sibling he seems to have had before Cyrus was Amestris, the princess murdered at the outset of the Hidarnid Rebellion in Armenia. By the time he was king himself, Artaxerxes did have a healthy crop of siblings, though still small compared to the royal family in Artaxerxes I's time. Obviously there was Cyrus, who we've discussed ad nauseum. 
Artaxerxes II would also have overseen the final years of two other brothers' educations. One was Oxothres, who we only know about because he is listed as one of Parasatus' sons by Theseus. The other is Artontes. The only thing we can really say about him is that he married a Persian noblewoman, which is not a surprise, but his descendants will be important. Either of these two might be the satrap of Media mentioned by Xenophon in episode 83, but that is likely to be a half-brother given how young these two were. No more than 22 at most for Axothres, and younger still for Artontes. Artaxerxes seems to have been determined to make up for his small family. He was famed in the ancient world for the sheer number of concubines he took into his household, and the number of sons he sired with them. According to one Greek account, he had 112 lesser sons by his various partners, and we have to imagine there were just as many daughters. All of Artaxerxes' children would have been dispersed into government positions throughout the empire, great and small, and married off to members of the nobility to strengthen royal ties with the rest of the empire. Of these, only a few are noteworthy. Despite his many partners, Artaxerxes is only known to have had one Persian wife in the early part of his reign. Of course, that is Statera, the Hidarnid noblewoman whose animosity with Perisatis ultimately led to her death. Artaxerxes' fully Persian daughters were mostly married off to important satraps in the Western Empire. First came an unnamed daughter mentioned by Xenophon as the wife of Tissaphernes, a royal alliance as reward for his steadfast loyalty. When he was first made satrap of Armenia, Orontes received a similar alliance in the form of a wedding with Rodogune, the first of Artaxerxes' daughters we can attach a name to. I imagine she may have played a role in her husband's defection from the satrap's revolt. Then came Apame, who was married to Pharnabazus II of Phrygia after he successfully invaded Greece and became the mother of Artabazus II, the new satrap of Phrygia who invaded Cappadocia and fought the Great Revolt. Next we get to Oka, a woman we know very little about beside the fact that her daughter married Prince Ochus sometime before Artaxerxes II died. We don't even know the daughter's name. That just leaves two young daughters of Artaxerxes and Statera, Amestris and Atossa, with a pair of good old-fashioned Achaemenid names. We last heard from Amestris when she was betrothed to Tirabazus. Tirabazus had been imprisoned awaiting Artaxerxes' return from the campaign against the Caducian rebels in 383, but was released and given an office at court as one of the king's advisors. See episode 88, Peace at Last. That union never came to fruition. Following Tissaphernes' last failure as satrap of Lydia, when he was repeatedly tricked by Agesilus during the Spartan invasion, he was recalled to court and executed. 
The execution of the last Hidarnid of any note was the opening that the Queen Mother needed to reconcile with her son. After Tissaphernes' death, Perisatis was allowed to return to court, following her brief exile in Babylon. Even if you are fairly grim and say she gave birth to Artaxerxes in her early teens, Perisatis was getting up there, and would have been minimum 75 by the time Tirabazus was betrothed to Amestris. According to the Greek historian Danon, known only from references in other authors, Artaxerxes was a decade older than the numbers I've been using, so Perisatis would be in her 80s. Once back in court, Perisatis set to work influencing her son, and at least in her own mind, strengthening the dynasty. As Plutarch tells it, Artaxerxes II had fallen madly in love with both of his younger daughters, Amestris and Atossa. He tried to conceal this from Perisatis, Cersei Lannister style, but when she realized, the Queen Mother began showing more affection to her granddaughters, and encouraging her son's passions until he married them both. Pick a Targaryen if we're going with the Game of Thrones thing. Close kin marriages, especially brother to sister, are entirely common in Achaemenid history. We've had several of them. Even at this very point in the narrative, Mausolus of Caria was married to his sister Artemisia. However, at least to modern minds, there is probably a big leap in morality and comfort from sibling to daughter as a sexual partner. For one, in any modern context, it screams of the worst pedophilia and abuse. For another, you know, ew. I can't believe these words are going to come out of my mouth. Avoiding defense of incest as much as I can, it's at least worth it to try and understand the context. For one, we're not talking about children. By the time this was happening in the late 380s or early 370s, Statera had been dead for a decade or more, and would have been in her late 40s at minimum when she died, past typical childbearing age in antiquity. The princesses were probably in their late teens or early 20s, so adults by the standard of their time. We're also not looking at a close-knit nuclear family. Artaxerxes had scores of children, and even though a Caymanid dukeshish could wield immense influence, there probably were not a lot of opportunities for teenage girls to participate in court proceedings. Does that make Plutarch's story of their 65-year-old father lusting after them any less creepy? No. But take Plutarch with the same pinch of salt as any Greek author. Even when they're writing about how good a Persian king was, there is still the recurring theme of Greeks painting the whole East with a broad, sexually decadent, debauched brush. It also brings us to 
the very touchy subject of Quedoda, possibly best known from its prominent and controversial role in the Crusader Kings games. Quedoda is a Zoroastrian religious concept that is, under at least one understanding, the sanctity of close kin marriage. And it is a Zoroastrian concept. It is not made up. Modern Zoroastrians, and even Iranians more generally, strenuously oppose the interpretation that this means Zoroastrians were marrying and reproducing with their immediate families for generations. There is no evidence for it in any recent Zoroastrian history. No observed instances by Westerners or other outsiders since extensive contact between Iranian and Indian communities began in the 1700s, and minimal historical evidence outside the highest rungs of ancient nobility. It's barely referenced in just two medieval Zoroastrian texts, and the Avesta references the word Queroda, but never explains what it means. We can say with absolute certainty that close family sexual relationships were never the norm in Zoroastrianism, and are not an important part of recent history. The word Quedoda itself has been practically poisoned by commentators and popular culture in the West, Iran, and India, using it to malign Zoroastrians as backwards and incestuous. Zoroastrians today combat the worst implications of the word with a number of explanations, all of which are supported to one degree or another by historical sources, both ancient and modern. In the context of the Parsi community around modern Mumbai, it is often explained as the importance of marrying inside the community. As the Parsis developed a tradition of non-conversion and excising people who married outside the faith, the only way to continue the religion was by marrying inside a relatively small group, often leading to first-cousin marriages. Others argue that references to close family members are meant to be understood as metaphorical, brothers and sisters in faith, and so on. However, it is impossible to deny that ancient kings and priests engaged in incest. So another argument is that Quedoda was only ever intended for those highest-ranking people who occupied a tier between Ahura Mazda and the Yazadas, and the rest of mortal men. If any of the non-generalized interpretations are correct, this is almost certainly the most accurate way to read things given the historical evidence of Achaemenid, Parthian, and Sassanid nobles marrying their siblings. Two Zoroastrian sources argue at least partially in favor of the general society-wide interpretation. Book 3, Chapter 80 of the Denkard, a 9th century Zoroastrian theological treatise, references how it is well known 
in some societies that intercourse with one's children is both, and I am quoting, highly pleasurable and in accordance with religion. Ugh. I'm putting these words out into the world. However, the broader context of the argument being made is not clear on whether or not this was a regular practice or just a theological point in the broader argument against marriages between Zoroastrian and non-Zoroastrian. The second is more detailed. Chapter 8 of the Pallavi Riviyat pertaining to the Dadastan i Danig is a long explanation of Quedora, included as part of a Parsi priest's explanation of religious laws to one of his counterparts in Iran from the 10th century CE. It lays out the theological underpinnings of why sexual congress between father and daughter is greater than that between mother and son, which is, in turn, greater than that between brother and sister, and why all three are more holy than other sexual partners. However, it has to be noted that in both the Dencard and the Pallavi Riviat, none of these incestuous relationships are ever discussed in terms of marriage. In fact, they are almost exclusively segregated from the conversation in both texts about choosing a permanent legal partner. That's especially noteworthy in the Dencard, where it is brought up in a debate about marriage, but only used as evidence for why Zoroastrian cannot marry Jew. When actually discussing marriage, the author of the Dencard only insists that Zoroastrians should marry inside the faith. Perhaps most notably of all, the Pallavi Riviyat explicitly states that Quedora was no longer practiced in Iran or India, though the author does argue that it should have been. Whenever medieval Zoroastrian texts refer to something that had not been done in a long time, it's a toss-up between something that was actually done in Sassanid Iran or a theological ideal that only exists in the semi-mythical past before humans started screwing up. For our purposes, though, both the Dencard and the Riviyat lay out the theological underpinning for the idea, whether or not it was ever practiced by anybody, and this actually falls bizarrely and uncomfortably into the category of why I find Zoroastrianism so interesting as an outsider. A constant thread through discussions of religious mythology, whether it's the Abrahamic creation story laid out in the Bible and the Quran, or the myths of Greece, Egypt, Rome, and so on, is wait... But wasn't that incest when the gods did it? Or when the first human couple did it? And if there were just two people populating the earth, weren't all of their kids committing incest too? And basically every religion just kind of looks at the ground and shrugs or writes it off as, well, it was okay because they were too divine for it to count. 
when faced with the same question. The Zoroastrians of the Middle Ages said yes, it was incest. And that's why these couplings are more holy than any other sex you could be having. If Ahura Mazda is the creator of everything, then when he created the Amesha Spentas, they were his children. And if the coupling of Ahura Mazda and Spenta Armaiti created Geomart, the first man, then he must have been their son. So it stands to reason that when Geomart died and his semen fell to earth, which was the very element represented by Armaiti, then the two new humans that sprung out of the ground were the product of a son and his mother. These divinely created siblings were Mashia and his sister Mashiani, and they produced mankind, children who then paired off and produced many children of their own, eventually populating the whole world. That's at least one version of the Zoroastrian creation story, as told in these chapters explaining Quedora. If the gods engage in it, and the first people engage in it, then there must be something special, or so these medieval authors argued. The Pallavi Riviyat takes this a step further, and prescribes Quedota couplings as a way to purify a Zoroastrian community of their ritual contamination, treating incestuous sex as the ritual of purification. But again, and I cannot stress this enough, even the Riviyat itself says that this was never applied in real life, as of the 10th century, and absolutely nothing suggests it was common at any time. But that is Quedota. That is the full context of what it could possibly mean, and why it comes up from time to time in discussions of Zoroastrianism. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. And I included that discussion here to contextualize what is going on with Artaxerxes II and his daughters. Divorced from Plutarch's presentation of a lustful old king and his crafty scheming mother, there are theological implications to Artaxerxes marrying Amestris and Atossa. It was, by at least some religious logic, an act of purification for the dynasty. In fact, as father and daughter, any children could have been perceived as more righteous than any of their half-siblings or, in fact, more righteous than any Persian royal before them. At 65, it wouldn't be shocking for Artaxerxes to be impotent, but this at least underpins what was happening. He married a mistress first, shifting marriage arrangements for Tirabazis over to Atossa for a time, but then he married her too at Perisodis' urging. That brought an end to both our list of Artaxerxes' daughters and to Tirabazis' hope for a royal wedding. This match would have been one of the Queen Mother's last acts. Nearing 80, she had to have died shortly after the royal weddings, and she isn't mentioned in any of the later drama. Plutarch also notes that Atossa was briefly afflicted with leprosy, but cured, meaning that it wasn't actually leprosy as defined today, which was incurable until the 20th century. Ancient sources conflated leprosy with basically any painful skin condition. Herodotus says that the Persians believed leprosy was a punishment by the sun god. Which is hilarious to me, because that really sounds like it was viewed as a form of permanent sunburn. Given that Atossa was cured, it was probably something like bacterial psoriasis, which would actually line up with the treatment for leprosy given in the Vendidad. That late Avestan text prescribes washing the afflicted area with cow's urine, which actually does have effective antimicrobial properties. None of this stopped Tirabazis from doing his duty during the Second Caducian Revolt in the late 370s. He marched north with an army, sent to put down the rebels, suffering through harsh conditions in the eastern Caucasus, without so much as a single battle to justify being there. Finally, when they were deep in Caducian territory, Persian scouts reported that the rebellion was being led by two rival Caducian chieftains. Tirabazis formulated a plan to put down the rebels without a fight. He went to one of the chieftains, while his son Arpates went to the other. 
Both Tirabazis and Arpates warned the Caduceans that their rival had already gone to make terms and swear loyalty to Persia. They told the one they were meeting that he better run along too, or else he would be held up as the only rebel, defeated in battle, and their rival would take over their territory. It worked a charm. Both Caduceian factions made peace, and Tirabazis won great acclaim in court for his quick thinking and deception. Tirabazis and Arpates would have returned to Parsa sometime around 370, just as the Great Revolt was starting to take shape in the West. Now just about 75 himself, it was generally assumed that Artaxerxes II wasn't long for this world, even though he remained in good health. Rival factions were beginning to develop at court over the issue of succession, and old wounds were tearing open. Artaxerxes had a number of sons named in our sources, though Mithridates is only known from passing references. Others are more significant. Darius and Ariaspes were the only living sons of Artaxerxes and Statera. Their half-brother Ochus was the youngest of the king's adult sons by a concubine, and another half-brother named Arsimes had a role to play as well. As the eldest, Darius was the obvious heir apparent and everyone at court had basically assumed that would be a fact of life throughout Artaxerxes' reign. However, Darius was already 50 years old, born when his grandfather was still on the throne, and there would always be a party at court that favored the Xerxes precedent. You'd think after Darius II made Artaxerxes his heir and Cyrus was defeated for challenging that, this would be settled. But there was still a movement to favor younger sons who were born after their father became king. Of the available candidates, Ochus was the most charismatic, dynamic, and warlike. Apparently, he had proven his mettle in the east and gained a strong following among the Persian courtiers. Ochus sought out powerful allies who could turn the succession in his favor, and who better than his own sister-slash-new mother-in-law, Atossa? They were close in age, and probably knew each other better than siblings who were twenty years their senior. Ochus told Atossa that he would marry her when their father died, and make her his primary consort, the queen mother-to-be, as it were. With their own mother dead, Atossa would become the most powerful woman in the empire. Unaware of Atossa's involvement with the pro-Ochus party at court, Artaxerxes sought to nip a growing problem in the bud. He was old but healthy. He recognized Ochus for what he was, a potential Cyrus the Younger in the making. Plutarch says the king named Darius his heir in the mid-360s, but the details of the story might suggest that it was something more. Darius was allowed to put on the kadaris, the stiff felt cap that the Greeks called the tiara, or the diadem. It was the outward symbol of a caimanid kingship. 
to me, this reads a lot more like Artaxerxes promoted Darius to become co-king. Making his eldest son king before he died would make more sense as a tactic than just declaring Darius heir. Darius II had named Artaxerxes heir too, and that never stopped Cyrus the Younger. But if Prince Darius was already king, maybe that would be enough. Though if that were true, it would mean that all of our traditional numbering was off, and we might actually be looking at a premature Darius III elation. But I'll just call him Prince to keep things straight. As part of his ascension to true crown princehood, Darius was allowed to ask his father for a boon. Anything he wanted, and it would be given to him. Darius asked for one of our old friends, Aspasia the Wise, the Greek concubine whose defiance and force of will made her the favorite of Cyrus the Younger. She had traveled with Cyrus to Mesopotamia, and was captured in the rebel camp after Canaxa. For the last 40 years, she had been one of Artaxerxes' concubines, part of the royal household, and an official partner of the king. Now, Darius is committing some breach of etiquette here. It was a crime punishable by death for a man to so much as touch one of the king's sexual partners without permission. The very suggestion that one of his partners could have a child that wasn't his was a threat to royal succession and marriage pacts. For a prince of roughly the same age as the woman in question to openly ask permission to take the king's concubine as his own, it was just short of revealing they had already started an affair. But court protocol demanded that Artaxerxes grant his son whatever he asked for, and if he refused, it would be a slight that all but nullified Darius's recent elevation. So, the king told Darius that he could have Aspasia on the condition that Aspasia herself wanted it. If she refused, Aspasia would remain in Artaxerxes' harem. When Aspasia eagerly went for the prince, it was also tantamount to openly admitting to the affair, and just a few weeks later, Artaxerxes recalled Aspasia to court and ordered her to become a priestess of the Yazada Anahita at Ecbatana. Plutarch says this was to keep her chaste, though that flies in the face of basically everything we know about Near Eastern goddess worship, but the point is clear either way. Aspasia was being kept away from Darius as a punishment for their perceived crimes. This led Darius to Tirabazis, another man whose romantic plans had been dashed against the rocks of Artaxerxes II's own desire. Tirabazis told Darius that wearing the royal tiara didn't do him any good if he couldn't enforce his own will. Just look at Ochus. He was all but openly having an affair with the king's Persian wife, and using that to build his own influence at court, even as Darius was proclaimed king to be. Just look at the state of things. 
Darius was publicly shamed by his father before even fully ascending the throne. What kind of message did that send? Even if Ochus decided not to press his own claim, nobody would ever try to stop him from living out life as Prince of the Empire. But if nobles thought Darius was weak, well, a king had to convince people that he was worthy of the title, or he would no longer be king. Clearly, his father had no intent of letting Darius exercise any more royal power than he ever had before. But the old king was 80, and nobody would be surprised if he just didn't wake up. Tirabazus and Prince Darius plotted to quietly assassinate Artaxerxes in his sleep. But nobles throughout history have gotten sloppy around their servants, and one of Darius's eunuchs went to the king. Not quite willing to believe it, Artaxerxes laid awake in bed on the appointed night, waiting and watching. Only when he had clearly seen Tirabazus and Darius themselves enter the room did he get out of bed, slam the door on an inner chamber, and shout to rouse his servants and guards. In a panic, Tirabazus tried to fight off the immortals, only to be impaled on a spear while Darius was detained, still standing bewildered inside his father's bedroom. Darius's sons were rounded up as well and taken to Artaxerxes for judgment, but the king couldn't preside over this particular trial. He had executed so many nobles in his time, but he left the fate of his son and grandsons to a council of noblemen, who reported back to Artaxerxes as the trial progressed. The decision was unanimous. Darius had plotted regicide, and must be condemned to death. Artaxerxes only returned to public life to preside over the execution of his eldest son, and Darius and the royal grandsons were all beheaded. That threw the debate over succession into utter disarray. Ariaspes, the last remaining son of Statera, seemed like the obvious choice. But Ochus had a powerful following, as did their half-brother Arsimedes. Ariaspes was seen as a worthy heir to his father's legacy. No nonsense and just in his dealings as a satrap. Arsimedes had always been one of the king's favorites, and was a devout religious man who must have had strong ties to the Magi and other priestly orders. Ochus began pulling strings, sending his own supporters at court to Ariaspes while he was away with regular royal duties to govern one of the eastern satrapies. These messengers kept warning Ariaspes that the king thought he was involved in the assassination plot. They told Ariaspes over and over that his own father was planning to have him executed, driving the prince to depression and anxiety, until overwhelmed by a constant trickle of threats against him, Ariaspes committed suicide. Artaxerxes is said to have been broken by this news. But we're now reaching around 361 BCE, and the king's health was failing anyway. Rather than openly appointing a new successor, or going through the strain of investigating Ochus, 
He sent Ochus out to lead an army against the Egyptians in Phoenicia and made Arsames his chief advisor. As the closest and favorite son of the king, the intention was clear enough to the nobility. Arsames would be at court when Artaxerxes died, and Ochus would be far away. With any luck, that would be enough to get Arsames on the throne with enough support to fend off his younger brother. Unbeknownst to anyone else, when Ochus left to fight in the west, he sent an assassin, Arpates, the son of Tirabazus. With his father dead as part of a treasonous plot, this young nobleman must have known there was no way to regain any sort of meaningful position under Artaxerxes or his chosen heirs. Allying with Ochus and ensuring his new friend ascended was the only route to power available, and so Arpades did it. By cover of night and with the assistance of Atossa, he infiltrated the royal palace, slipped into Arsami's apartment with a dagger, and then quietly made his escape. When the sun rose, there was only one contender for the throne left standing. Plutarch attributes Artaxerxes' death to the shock of hearing about Arsami's. Given that the king was already dying, that's not hard to believe. But we're not quite ready to kill him just yet. We have two religions worth of new developments to cover first. So next time, we are off to Judea. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.